Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today and, as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends or your family and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Taylor Steele, is an entrepreneur and real estate investor who lives his passion of helping others to succeed in achieving their financial dreams and goals by investing and growing their real estate portfolio. As a real estate investor himself, Taylor brings a very valuable and unique perspective that expands his experience as a realtor and private equity specialist and assists his clients in discovering opportunities in the space of private real estate deals across both Canada and the United States. After graduating from BCIT with an entrepreneurship specialization in 2015, Taylor co-founded IRR, which is a boutique style brokerage focused exclusively on investment real estate. Taylor is not only accomplished in many aspects of business, but also in building his own personal portfolio of investment properties in both British Columbia and the Southern US. As much as Taylor enjoys working with sophisticated real estate investors, he also has a very strong passion for helping first time investors get started. And with all of that bio in mind, let's get this show started. Listen in, enjoy. Taylor Steele, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thanks for joining me, my friend. Great to be here, Patrick. Thank you very much for having me here today. Okay, so Taylor, now let's uh, give our listeners some insights into who you are, what you do. The, the question I ask, Taylor Steele, what do you do? Yeah, so my name is Taylor Steele. Uh, and in short, we help people invest in real estate deals. Uh, myself, personally, I'm a real estate investor. 
I'm also a licensed realtor here in the province of BC, and I also have my private equity license with an exempt market dealer. So uh, for me, a huge passion of mine is real estate. And over the last seven years, uh, myself and my business partner, Cynthia Asin, uh, we've helped people invest in real estate deals here in Canada uh, and into the United States as well. So you owned, you started, uh, I think it was you and Cynthia uh, Asin started your business IRR, Investment Revenue Realty, right? Correct. Yeah. So in 2015, uh, I was just graduating from uh, BCIT. I did the marketing management entrepreneurship program uh, there and uh, was just was just getting out of university and figuring out kind of what, what I wanted to do. Uh, I did my practicum for Cushman and Wakefield on the commercial real estate side of things in my last semester there. So got a little bit of exposure onto the commercial real estate side of things and understanding and learning that business. And as I was graduating, I got connected with Cynthia. Uh, Cynthia Asin had, uh, she'd been in, in the business for about 25 years uh, as a realtor and focus more specifically on the investment side of the business than the more traditional uh, residential open house kind of buy and sell. Uh, and so she wanted to partner up and start a, a real estate investment brokerage. So in 2015, we created Investment Revenue Realty. Uh, and uh, today, um, we're also licensed with an exempt market dealer, uh, and we're able to offer private equity investments, and that's called Integrated Equities. And we're licensed in BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario to offer our clients these different types of uh, investment opportunities. So dude, you're a young man, and and what you've just described in all of that is a whole lot of stuff going on, a lot of uh, entrepreneur skills, I guess, and uh, a lot of experience gained. I know that, you know, Cynthia's, you know, being kind of, you know, 25 years ahead of you in terms of that business has provided some great mentorship. But I want to go back to, tell me a little bit about BCIT. When you went there, uh, you actually studied entrepreneurship. Is that what I heard? Yeah, so they have the marketing management program and there's a couple different designations that you can specialize in uh, professional sales, real estate, entrepreneurship, uh, tourism, and I believe communication was the fifth one. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you get the ability to pick and choose and um, kind of growing up with some real estate background around the family. Uh, I, I didn't necessarily need to full on study that sector. Uh, my dad has also been an entrepreneur. So that was something that had always interested me. And so the opportunity to learn entrepreneurship from from a school was something that really appealed to me. And so in, in that last semester, everyone that in that program did a lot of different um, kind of public speaking, business ventures, marketing projects that that uh, kind of prepared us for for the real world. And that's one thing I really attribute that program at BCIT towards is is lots of practical hands on experience that, you know, one thing that was very important at BCIT was public speaking. So uh, whether you like to or not, you were forced to go up in front of the class and, and speak to your classmates about whether it was a project you're working on or a report. Uh, and so really getting people out of their comfort zone because in the real world, you probably will have to go up in front of the boardroom and talk to the entire group of your colleagues on something that you're working on. And so um, in addition to the, the education, I thought there was little tactics like that that they implemented in the, the program there that were really beneficial coming out. Well, you know, I'm thinking just as we're talking here, I mean, how long have I known you? Because you've been in the rain room, you know, for a, what seems like a long time, you know, uh, I mean, you're still a young man, but, you know, but you've just like, I've watched your kind of watch you grow and watch you kind of take on more stuff. And how long have you been hanging around that rain room? 
Yeah, so while I was in my final semesters of BCIT, I was going to to some of the RAIN meetings, especially the, the Acre one there. I remember that one in yeah. November. I think that was November 2014, that would have been. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're coming up on uh, on eight years uh, uh, together in, uh, in in the RAIN community. So yeah. uh, it's been been quite the journey. Well, I just don't know how it is that I seem to have gotten older and you haven't, but that's that's okay. Um, but you come by, you know, you also come by what you've, well, I want to say this, and I don't, you know, because I know your father, your dad, Dave, and he's been on the show a couple of times, um, as well as his partner, Janet LePage, has joined me on the podcast. I mean, so I have uh, some insights into your background, but I'd like to know, just as a young man growing up, you know, where you... Do you think you came out of the shoot being an entrepreneur? In other words, like, do you remember ever not wanting to be an entrepreneur or was it just really always there for you? I think it was I think it was process of elimination in some capacity. Um, you know, grew up, growing up, wanted to be a professional hockey player. Uh, that process of elimination was uh, was decided for me. It was not uh, was not in the NHL. And, uh, you know, thankfully, I've grew up playing hockey and a lot of my good friends. One of my best friends was drafted into the NHL. So I've got friends that play. And so I get to live vicariously through <laughs> them in that capacity. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so NHL player that was eliminated. Uh, my very first summer job worked on Bear Mountain over in Victoria, just outside of Victoria, cleaning golf clubs and working on the driving range. Decided that wasn't for me. Next summer, I did construction up in Qualicum. Uh, heart realized that hard labor wasn't for me. Uh, out of university, worked with an accounting firm, determined that maybe accounting wasn't for me. Worked for a property management company during a summer, determined that wasn't for me. And then, as I mentioned in my final year, working with Cushman and Wakefield on that practicum there, kind of determined that maybe that wasn't the, the niche that I wanted to focus in. So I wasn't wouldn't say that it was necessarily, I knew I was going to be in real estate and I knew that I was going to have a company that I, you know, got to drive the bus forward and make entrepreneurial decisions within. I think it was just kind of the path and, and the process of elimination that that some some way led me there. But also growing up around real estate and growing up around entrepreneurs, it was something that always, you know, in, enticed me and, and excited me. Yeah, I mean, I, I do see you as a, you know, a golfer. Are you a good golfer? Used to be a lot better when I worked on, uh, on the golf course. And, uh, you know, they always say in real estate that, Realtors always on the business doing golf, you know, on the golf course doing business. But I, I don't know where they get all this uh, this free time. I don't don't have as much five hours lying around as uh, as we used to. Yeah, isn't that the case? I have, you know, I I I can't call myself a golfer. I used to golf a lot more, but to your point, I just you know I can't find five hours in a day. And and I guess if it was a higher value, if I really enjoyed it a lot, but it's one of those games that you have to play it a lot to get good at it. And uh, I'm not that interested in it. And I just don't think I'd ever get good enough. To to enjoy it because, uh, yeah, that's it. That's the story I got around all of that anyways, right now. So you got into the real estate world. I mean, you're surrounded by, you know, uh, you, you kind of entered it, you know, Dave, uh, your dad kind of was in that as well. So that I certainly would think that that education and that guidance that he'd been able to provide you has been supportive of along the way. Uh, you know, I know that, uh, you know, knowing you to the degree that I've gotten to know you, you've, you're you're a smart dude. You're very, you are a great speaker. You've become a great speaker, and you've been on our stage uh, many times. But aside from all of that, um, you're smart. You got a good work ethic, and you've really taken it on. And I'm I, I got to say that you know, as an observer, you know, at the point in my life where I am, when I look at you know young 
people, young, in your case, a young guy like you, uh, and everybody's young to me, by the way, if you're under 50, you're young. So it's not a, it's not a shot at your age by any stretch. Uh, so you've got all the things that are going in. And, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you join me on the podcast is because I think there's a lot of young entrepreneurs out there that maybe don't have the confidence or don't think they can do it or kind of waffle in and out, you know, a job might be better. And do I really want to be an entrepreneur? So if you're somebody, if you're talking to somebody in that you know 25 to 35 year age group that's kind of sitting on the fence or wondering what they should do or if they should do it you know do you have any kind of lessons learned or some questions you would ask them or guidance you would maybe give them taylor uh, yeah i think in terms of so, so someone is is working at a job and they're considering maybe going something more entrepreneurial in that in that standpoint is that is that the question sure you know if, if somebody's kind of there wondering you know if they should go into business or take on business, is it something that you, I just looking at it because you're, you really have done a lot, you know, even with the intro that you provided us, you've just accomplished a lot of stuff and you're really good at what you do and you've really grown. And, and so I look at it, whether it's, you know, do people, should they just bear down, work hard, you know, do they need to get a mentor? Do they, should they go back to school? You know, is there something that you've learned along the way that maybe you would have even done different and, and that you would give some guidance in that, in that way, Taylor? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the one word you always hear is mentor. Um, I think that's something that's very important when, when starting what, whatever, whatever that is, if that's something entrepreneurial, having someone that can mentor you, or if you're being maybe entrepreneurial where you're working with inside of the company, having that person, that, that, that leader on your team that can really provide you with that guidance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at the end of the day, whenever you're starting something, you, you don't know what you don't know. And, and all of the things that we've accomplished over the last seven years, we probably didn't know how to do that when we started it. So there were a lot of things that we learned along the way that we refined, that we made a huge mistake and 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 the result of it was was a, a lesson. So I think from that standpoint, um, when when you are running your own business, you, you get to wear a lot of the hats, um, but also at the end of the day, generally at five o'clock, the, the, the clock doesn't stop and it's harder to shut your brain off because you are so ingrained in so many different areas of the business. So I think it can be a very rewarding uh, experience running and, and, and operating your own business. And I think as, as real estate agents or, uh, you know, investment realtors, everyone is their own business operator. You're your own entrepreneur. You get to set your own schedule. You get to determine how you market, how you brand, how you determine your follow-up, uh, what, what events you host, how you communicate with your clients. You know, you are, you are every point of contact with, with your clients. And so I think it can be a very rewarding experience, but at the end of the day, owning and, and managing your own business probably isn't for everyone, but I think it, it, it can be if, if it's the right, uh, if it's the right DNA. Interesting, you know, Ray Dalio, I listened to a podcast of Ray Dalio, and I don't remember who was interviewing him. But as he was working through, you know, and talking about what's happening economically, and, uh, you know, what, you know, people should consider, and, you know, aside from investing and in what's happening in the world overall, you know, he, uh, in his research, he came up with a stat that said, only 4% 
of the population, whatever population he was referring to, I don't recall, should ever be an entrepreneur. And it's, it's, it's really that low. There is an expectation that there should be more people being entrepreneurs. And he said the reality of it is, is that it's less than 4% of the population that is designed or, or really uh, has the character to become and take on being an entrepreneur, which I thought I, that was surprising for me, I think. I thought it would be higher. Um, and like I say, I'm not, I'm, I know it was 4% and I don't know what it was 4% of. I would have to be a little bit careful with that number, but I just by, surprised by it. That's all. I thought it would be higher. And that's, I think that's an interesting number to bring up. And, and maybe one thing to, to point out is, you know, uh, identifying and understanding what people's skill set are when you're, when you're building your team, um, you know, business development, for example, that's a very entrepreneurial activity, whereas documents, paperwork is a very administrative uh, task. You want to make sure that if you're growing your business, if you've got a de business development task that you need done, you're not trying to slot an administrative person in into that into that hole because maybe that's not their skill set or maybe they don't enjoy doing that that tactic. It's such a lesson learned for most entrepreneurs, right? Which is where they, you know, I think in the book, Good to Great, they talk about, you know, who are you putting on the bus and then what seat are you putting them in? And uh, sometimes you have to change seats and sometimes you have to kick people off the bus. And sometimes that's because you made the wrong decision to put the person on the bus, you know, and uh, that's, that's what happens along with that. Now, when you think about entrepreneurship, and I, I just want to dig into it a little bit because I'm very interested in kind of philosophy and uh, maybe what your vision is overall, but when we look at uh, business, we, of course, you know, want to make money and we want to be profitable. But, you know, that can't lead the charge, I don't think. It's, it's a, certainly at the front. It's, but I don't know that it's at the pointy end of the spear. Uh, what's your thoughts on, besides the, you know, the financial wins or risks that go with it either way, uh, aside from the financial aspect of business, Taylor, what is it that drives you in business? So I think, you know, going down to, I would say that the, the core why, like, why do I get up every single sure. day and, and do what I do? And I, you know, where I've, where I've, I've identified my why at is, you know, I, I want to provide the life that I had to my future, to my future family. I want to provide the exact same opportunities that were provided to me growing up. I wanted to, I want to provide that, that same experience, those same opportunities towards my future family. So for me, that's kind of my, my core why in terms of why we do the business. Um, I think the one thing I really enjoy is sharing, sharing these wins alongside these, these clients. I think hearing the stories of what they use some of these investment funds for towards, or I had a client that had a, a deal sell and they go, Hey, we're taking our profits and we're going on a cruise to Antarctica and we're going cruising around the world. And so it's hearing those sort of, those sort of wins and how they impact people in their day to day. I think for for us that's 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 cool seeing seeing the successes and sharing alongside those and um, also you know really just providing providing opportunities to to clients that they didn't know existed. I think when we sit down with a lot of people, they're surprised to hear that these opportunities exist for people that aren't accredited investors and don't have a million dollars of 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 assets to invest. And so there are other opportunities in the private equity space that they can participate in. And so I think it's, you know, it's 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 sharing the wins with the clients 
And then it's also providing, you know, a solution to a problem that people are experiencing, which is, you know, we're in an inflationary times and people are looking to put their, their money to work and real estate is generally an asset class of choice for, for a lot of people. So uh, providing them, them opportunities into that, uh, into that space. Taylor, let's unpack that a little bit. You know, it's interesting what you brought up in terms of what you're able to provide your clients or what you're able to see in terms of supporting your clients. I mean, because at the end of the day, we better like what we're doing and we better like the people that we're working with and we better really get lit up by the results that we provide. You know, it can't always be about us. If we're navel gazing, uh, we soon get bored with ourselves and realize that we have to be a contribution, which is what really what you and your team have been doing. And so tell me a little bit about IRR because you've said a couple things there, which is, you know, providing people an opportunity to invest in real estate and like you, you know, working with real estate investors all the time, there's always the classic, I don't have the money, I don't have the time, you know, I can't get a mortgage, you know, there's all sorts of reasons. And the reality of it is, there is many ways to invest in real estate. And IRR is one of those companies that provide the opportunities. You don't need 100,000 or 200,000 to get in the game, you can get in a lot lighter and really start to build a portfolio. So give us a little bit of insights into what IRR does. And in that regard, and even some of the regions that you guys are focused on these days. Yeah, so I'll kind of give the the breakdown and the history of the the different companies that that we work with, being myself and Cynthia Asin, and then we also have a third uh, gentleman on our team out here in North Van named Austin Carroll. So the three of us kind of work to, together organizing events and, and helping uh, clients invest in different deals. And so Cynthia and I, we started IRR together in 2015. It was a real estate investment brokerage. So we were both licensed realtors in BC. So helping our clients on the traditional buy and hold strategy of individual titled property, put down 20%, looking for an investment property. And then we also focused on helping partner them up with a property management company. So the property management company can handle all of the property management and the after asset management on behalf of the clients. So really trying to provide a passive hands-off turnkey way of investing uh, into real estate. Um, we actually just recently transferred our real estate license over to EXP Realty. So transferring over from IRR over to EXP. Wow, and good for you. Really, exci- really excited about you know the growth of that company, having our own brokerage, growing that for a few you know, six years. And I think really where EXP shines bright is the technology integration that they've been able to, to develop and, and implement into that company. So we're now licensed realtors at EXP Realty. And then the second arm of our business is we operate in the private equity space with it, what's called an exempt market dealer or an EMD. Uh, and that's called integrated equities. And we offer our clients different private real estate investments. So investments for as little as $25,000 you could invest into multifamily in Canada. You could invest in a self-storage facility here in BC. You could buy an apartment building down in the US. So providing our clients different geographical diversity and then also different real estate asset classes to invest in. And they can also participate in those deals using RSPs and TFSAs. So having both our real estate license and our uh, private equity license, this gives us the ability to offer our clients a wide range of different uh, investment opportunities. So just out of curiosity, Taylor, when you talk about EMD, exempt market dealers, do you do you personally or within however that might look, do you have to be an EMD yourself or is it in an in, in, in in-house uh, uh, classification? How does the EMD part of it work? 
Yeah. So the the EMD is the, the there. It's the real estate bro. It's the equivalent of a real estate brokerage that acts in between the developer that's selling the property and the client that that's purchasing the property. So mm. they're the agency that acts in between. So to to raise capital across Canada, you need to be licensed with the Securities Commission. Um, so we're licensed in BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario to work with these different companies. We work with five different private real estate investment groups that we raise money for, and we're required to do due diligence on these companies, understand and better underwrite their deals to understand the metrics on these opportunities that we're providing our clients. Once that's gone through a compliance overview at our company level, we're then able to offer those different uh, projects to our clients, assuming they're, they're suitable and fit their, their investment timelines there. Now you're spending a lot of time in the U.S. these days. Where are what are you focused on in uh, the U.S.? What what states and what property types? I know there was a time where I think with Western Wealth you were doing uh, a lot of stuff in Arizona, specifically in Phoenix. I don't know where those projects are these days. I'm assuming that uh, there's still stuff going on there. But give me some insights into what's going on in the U.S. these days and where uh, you guys are uh, hitting it out of the park. Yeah, so I mean, you've you've seen the story of Western Wealth since it's you know in yeah, sure back in 2014, 2015. So, uh, but I swear every month we blink, just the the numbers get higher and higher. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, they they got started in 2015 back down in Phoenix. Uh, today they're the second largest owner of apartment buildings there in in Phoenix, and since then they've spawned into Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, Atlanta, and Las Vegas. So those are the markets down in the Sun Belt that that they like. Uh, they're program is the exact same as when they started back in 2015. They're buying uh, vintage 1980s, 1990s apartment buildings where they're going in, renovating the exterior and the interior of these buildings, updating the pool area, the leasing center, the fitness studio, uh, really just modernizing and bringing that from a 1990s look and feel to something a little bit newer. Uh, and, you know, they've done close to 125 properties properties now over the last five years, I think they're at uh, 27,000 units that they've acquired. So they've been quite active and um, they're still bullish on those markets. They're, you know, continuing to see in migration from these other higher tax state, uh, higher tax rate states, you know, and, and the beneficiaries of those, those migrations have generally been the Texas's and the Arizona's and the Nevada's uh, of people coming in there. Well, yeah, we can get into, uh, well, I'll go down that path in a minute, but when we look at, you know, for sure, I mean, Western wealth is, I mean, it's, uh, it's a real story of success. It's very cool. And of course, I've had the opportunity. I remember when I interviewed uh, Janet LePage, who was one of the founders of, she was one of the founders of Western wealth, as I recall. And, uh, at, well, I know she was, I, I was just thinking, is it, was it Western Wealth or was there something else in there? But no. Anyways, I just remember when she said, you know, uh, they were at a half a billion dollars worth of transactions or uh, uh, assets, if you will. And uh, she said, my goal is to hit a billion. And of course, the next time I interviewed her, I think they're at just over a billion. And of course, they've gone far beyond that. And uh, so it is really great because Dave's been on our stage, of course, several times sharing the whole model of how they do it, what they do. Uh, it really is quite remarkable. And, and so from your guys' perspective, from IRR's perspective, I mean, that's got to be a, I don't know, I don't want to call it a sell, but it's got to be something that is really attractive for you to take your investors to because it's got such a track record and you know the history and really there's such great opportunity there given what they've accomplished. So I, I'm just looking at it going, it's pretty cool that you guys are aligned with that. 
Yeah, it's 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 been cool to be involved from from such an early early stage of the company and, yeah. and to see where it's at today. And um, thank thankfully, and you know, to the benefit of our clients' success as well, the the projects that they have uh, done and, and sold so far have been you know very successful on an average basis of nearly thirty percent annualized on the properties they've sold. And something from a from an agent perspective that I always like to highlight to my clients is you know the downside and and the worst properties they've purchased and sold have. Have been annualized returns at 11% per year. So still their, their misses have been in the double digits, again, not to their expectations or their targeted levels, but you know their average and their downside, they've had quite a, a very strong track record. And for a lot of clients up here in Canada, to go down there and invest in the US on their own directly in these cities, it takes a lot of legwork to go and look at properties, to go arrange financing, property management. A lot of the headache and the hassle of investing in the US, they eliminate and they take care of all of that for you as an investor. So for my clients, you know, they live in Calgary, they've got investment properties in Calgary, Alberta, here in BC, providing them some properties down in Phoenix or some properties down in Dallas, really holes out their property and portfolio for some more uh, diversification. Yeah. I mean, it really is remarkable what they've accomplished. And most importantly, you know, it's been kind of, um, they've done it with such a, a cool background of values. You know, I know what Janet does in terms of, you know, supporting, uh, you know, the backpack program for kids and, and how she, you know, interacts with clients at the buildings. And I mean, it really is remarkable what they've achieved, but this isn't about them. I'm saying, yes, investors, you should talk to uh, uh, Taylor about uh, Western wealth because it is remarkable, but you've got other stuff that you're doing and I don't want to skip over that, but also, Tell me a little bit about what you're seeing economically in the U.S. I mean, you mentioned, you know, the the different tax, you know, implications in each state. But I'm also given over the past few years or a couple of years of what COVID's driven and the culture and the shifts. I mean, I don't know if uh, it's like it feels or it sounds like when you look at, let's say, California as an example, you know, nobody wants to live in California anymore. Nobody can afford to live in California anymore. You know, the most uh, woke state on the planet, the most uh, green state on the planet. And everybody's going, get me the hell out of here. And and they are. They're heading to the Floridas and the Texas and, and and the Arizonas. What are you seeing? And I mean, your boots on the ground, you're kind of in it on a regular basis. What is it you're seeing economically? And, and uh, what's your kind of read on the situation? Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, the, the states that you mentioned there, the Arizonas, the Floridas, the, the Nevadas, the Texas, that those have all been the, the beneficiaries of all these migrants, which have been coming from the, the Illinois, the New Yorks, the, the Californias. And I think it's attributed to, to a number of different things. I think obviously COVID sped a lot of these characteristics up for people, but I think the affordability aspects huge in a lot of these markets. Uh, I think the, the livability, the quality of life, the amenities, what's around me. Um, I think that's an important decision for a lot of people. And then these cities have really been the the beneficiaries of the the population growth and the job growth. And then I think the big thing on the corporate side is the amount of corporations that are relocating to to these areas. So you've got Apple, Intel, State Farm, Facebook, all of these big tech companies have set up their more corporate headquarters in these offices. You got Oracle that left uh, San Francisco. There was a huge migration of these big technology companies out of of the Californias uh, down, down more south. So I think 
if, if this affordability trend uh, in these markets where it's continuing to drive upwards, I think that that could continue to drive more people outwards of those areas into uh, sub-markets. You've got like Salt Lake City that's seen a huge, huge uptick in, in population growth. So these, these people are moving there based on uh, the uh, availability of jobs, the quality of life that they can live, and just, I would say, the overall affordability and the, the, the amenities that these cities offer. Well, affordability is certainly an issue, and uh, you know we see it here in Canada, and we actually, as small as Canada is, and you start to realize, I'm sure you start to realize with your travel, just how small Canada is when you get outside and look at the U.S. of the world, 10 times the population of Canada, and you realize that even Canada, given cost of living, people are, you know, the interprovincial migration is quite high, given what's happening in the, the affordability world. So tell me a little bit, though, when you look into the future, of the U.S., I mean, there's certainly concerns with what's happening in the world economically, whether it be Russia, Ukraine, China. I mean, there's so many things that are affecting it. When you step back from it and you look at a global picture, uh, when you're having conversations with your team and with your contacts, uh, how can you remain optimistic or do you remain optimistic? Uh, are you looking at it going, well, we better do some risk mitigation? How are you looking at things, Taylor, given uh, you know that you're working with other people's capital and I realize that you take that all very, very seriously. But I'm curious how, how you see that picture given what's happening today, you know, in the world. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll, I'll first touch on kind of their 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 strategy. So what, what their particular strategy is, is the value add. So buy something that's say a C plus letter grade, put some money into it, fix it, improve it, and take it to, to a, B, a B letter grade. So they're upgrading and improving the property, creating additional value. So from their standpoint in, in these properties that they're purchasing, they're forcing and they're driving a lot of the value growth on these properties by doing the renovations, by upgrading the, the kitchens, by plugging in washers and dryers. So just in addition to the market growth, the rent growth, and the the you know, market appreciation, a lot of the time they're going in and they're forcing and they're driving this, this value within the property. So they're removing, they're aiming to remove some of the risk on these properties by going in and, and forcing and driving the value creation. The one point that I think a lot of these investment groups continue to drive home, both on the Canadian side and the U.S. side, with the rising interest rates and the rising construction costs, um, the, the, the permitting times that it takes in a lot of these cities, the main underlying issue that a lot of these groups have as their thesis is there's just not enough supply in these markets. And, and with the amount of people that continue to move in, both from intermigration from states and international immigration. And you look up here in Canada, we've got 400,000 people expected to come in and we've got extremely low vacancy rates in most of the major metros here across Canada. Well, well how do we expect to house and, and, and put these people into places? So it's a demand thing, rents increase, values increase. And so I think from the standpoint of, you know, you've got the war, you've got interest rates, you've got a lot of ex inflation, you've got these external factors that, that are impacting the market. Um, I still think on an overall multi-year basis, the commentary that we're hearing is these markets, they just don't continue to build the inventory as fast as people are moving in, which has helped accelerate the, the rent growth and the price growth in, in these areas. 
Uh, yeah, and I 100% agree that, you know, we say that a lot to investors is that they're worried about interest rates, they're worried about uh, the costs uh, associated with buying a piece of real estate. And as an investor, well, first off, of course, in the news, it doesn't matter. When they're talking about housing, they're not talking about investment housing. They're talking about people who want to live in a house and all the challenges that they face, et cetera. And the reality of it is, as investors, we're looking at what the market is for us and as investors the demand as the cost of living increases and the cost of housing to own a home increases as interest rates increase uh, of course what we're seeing is the demand on the rental side of it increase as well and that's where the shortages live is on a lot on the rental side as well so there's always an opportunity within that given that you know uh, and I love of course again you know what Western has done, Western Wealth has done, is really put together a model. So when they're bringing a C to a B, not only are they knowing what to buy and what to negotiate, they're also very efficient at achieving the outcome. So they're really looking at taking and adding value, that forced appreciation, if you will, uh, and they do it very effectively and very efficiently. So uh, that's kind of cool in that side of it. You know, where I want to go with this is, is you know, you are kind of uh, related to the millennials of the world, and we hear a lot about uh, how they are struggling. And when you look at investment opportunities, they don't want to own a home, but they want to invest money and they're going on, you know, maybe Robin Hood. What are you seeing in that space? So if, if you're looking at and you're guiding millennials, which you can relate to, what's your, what's your guidance? What's your advice to them these days when it comes to getting in the real estate market? Because in their world, they'll never, ever, ever own a piece of real estate. And so what's your thoughts on that? I, th I think it's, uh, you know, the the whole strategy of, you know, a hundred, a hundred bucks a week in, invested into the, you know, you've seen that chart of a hundred dollars a week invested into the stock market over X period of years that yeah. at 7% growth, you know, I'm, I'm not sitting here advocating to put all your money in the stock market, but be, being able to invest in the stock market and get invested in that way, if you've only got a thousand dollars, is is a way to get your capital to work. And so, whether that's getting into the stock market or maybe it, for you it's cryptocurrency, that's what a lot of millennials they've got their their asset allocation towards cryptocurrency. And again, not not saying that's that's the right way, but just being involved and in, and in investing and learning and understanding and, and making mistakes and wins and and just getting involved. And now you've got. Uh, technology platforms such as Addy, which allows people to invest for, I think it's as little as $10 or $1 up to $1,500. So you can get the exposure and the, the, the diversification into real estate uh, for, for quite a low entry entry point. And so um, I think for people who don't have a lot to get started, it's it's getting started and setting up a plan. And uh, for me, and when I just started my my job, I set up an account at TFSA with a buddy and every second Friday, he's taken out money, and it's in an index and in a TFSA. And it's, you know, it's been seven years that I've had that with him. And so um, it's really just getting started setting up a plan and uh, being 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 involved in whatever different asset allocation that that may be for you. And uh, maybe that's cryptocurrency, maybe that's real estate, maybe that's the stock market. I think there is, uh, you know, and that's great guidance. I think there's a fundamental too that we often maybe 
I don't know. I, I'm generalizing, so I don't want to do that. But I think there's often I'm led to believe that there's an expectation that, you know, a millennial should be at a point in their life where they should own a house. And I'm going, well, I don't know about that. You know, I don't uh, I don't recall. Maybe I did. I don't know how old I was when I bought my first property. But at the end of the day, I did exactly or some version of what you just described. I took what capital I did have. I invested it. I built it up. I was then in a position to actually buy a piece of real estate. So it's it's an interesting, uh, I guess, what would I call it? An interesting story or an interested narrative, an interesting narrative around the millennials and their, I don't know, it's like they should have a right to buy a house. I just don't know if I'm there yet with that whole conversation. I want to see, I'm a huge fan of young entrepreneurs. I'm a huge fan of young people that want to grow their financial uh, success or their, their net worth. Uh, I just... I'm sometimes thrown off by what I hear or what I read about expectations and timelines. So I, I guess that's where I'm at with it. That's just a view, my view of the world. Well, I think it's also just at some point it's 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 an awareness and, and lack of education and not know, just not knowing that that's an option, you know, not knowing that you can joint venture with a person, but put in no, none of your own money, or if you've got financing on an income side of things, you can qualify for the mortgage you know, you don't know that you could be potentially a joint venture partner for someone on an investment condo in Vancouver, which is where you probably, you know, if, if that's where you grew up, maybe that's where you want to own. You could potentially do that with someone who's got the capital, but unless you know that that strategy and that option is available to joint venture with none of your own money and just bring the financing, you, you, you don't know that that is a way to participate in, in a real estate deal. Well, that's an interesting, you know, you make an, an interesting point because we're both familiar with uh, joint ventures, but that's not necessarily a, you know, a common knowledge outside of, uh, you know, certain circles. A joint venture is not a, you know, it's not a strategy that you talk about on the street. I mean, you're, if you're within a community like the Real Estate Investment Network or if you're surrounded by, you know, somebody like yourself that can have a conversation about how to raise capital or to how to joint venture with somebody that definitely, you know, changes the conversation. But as we're talking here, I think about, you know, the conversation or the, you know, what I read and some what we see, and there's been some big numbers thrown around about how many boomers are gifting, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to their millennial children. What if we what if we said, okay, why don't you consider gifting your child a hundred grand, fifty grand, twenty-five grand, and then you take it and you invest it in that that limited partnership, uh, a Western wealth deal, for example, or one of the deals that IRR has. I mean, is that a strategy? Is that a way to gift money? You're the EMD. You're the guy that knows. Tell me about that. So generally, generally in ours, I think you, you see that much more on the real estate uh, real estate ownership side of things. Yep. So more the individual properties, especially people getting into their primary residence. Uh, I know for me personally, I was fortunate where I was uh, in that position where my, my parents had helped me out with my primary residence. And six, six years later, now I'm extremely fortunate that they, that they did because, you know, the opportunities now that that has provided me to you know, set up a home equity line of credit and, and now spawn that into another property. So um, I'm very fortunate in that capacity. And I've seen firsthand friends and family where they've been in that situation where their parents have maybe pre-given them their inheritances, some of the verbiage you hear today saying, hey, if I'm going to die in 20 years and I'm going to leave you 200 grand, why wait to die to give you that 200 grand? Why don't I just give that to you today so you can get into the market? Because they've seen firsthand how, how, 
um, the market has grown and, and they obviously benefited from that on, on their, probably their real estate side of things. And so they believe in it. And so I think mm-hmm. on the property ownership side of things, you see a lot of parents that are helping their kids get started, uh, on, on their first place, uh, in the private equity side of things. Um, we have some benchmarks and some restrictions on who can invest, um, to be an eligible investor, you got to make either $75,000 a year more of income or have $400,000 of net assets, including your real estate. So there are some qualifications. So if a 20 year old guy has 50 grand gifted to him from his, his parents, he's, he's not eligible to, to invest in those deals. So there are some, some nuances and some restrictions in the private equity space on who can participate and, and how much they can participate for. That's cool. So thanks for that. That's a great insight. And tell me a little bit about, you know, because you brought up something that, and and I kind of follow you along, um, you talk about storage, uh, self-storage, I think it is a project that you've got. And I think you had a, did you have a car wash project or something at one point as well, Taylor? Tell me a little bit about those just out of curiosity. Yeah, so that's a, a BC-based group that we've uh, started to work with the last, uh, it's coming up on three three years now that we've raised capital for their projects and uh, they're a Vancouver-based company. And what they do is they buy uh, development sites where they can rezone and develop self-storage and or car washes on these sites. So uh, they've done five sites here in BC. Uh, the first one in downtown Vancouver was a standalone self-storage facility. They've got one on Boundary, which was is self-storage and car wash. They've got one up in Kelowna, which is again, self-storage and car wash. They've got a, one in South Surrey, which is both self-storage and car wash. And then the final one in Coquitlam, which is just a standalone car wash. So um, for investors, it's diversification into a different real estate asset class, i.e. commercial real estate with some, some self-storage and some car wash business components there. So really unique offering in that standpoint for a lot of our clients they are used to multifamily or duplexes or single family suited homes. So for them having that that bit of self-storage exposure with $25,000 in their TFSA really provided them different uh, different diversification. You know, I love the whole concept of that. And, you know, when you look at uh, the opportunities that Canada presents and then they expand on that, uh, you know, I, I remember I had a profound realization. This was many years ago and I had gone into a mall. I don't know what it, what it was. I, wanted, I, I, I went to a mall store. Anyways, I'm wandering around. I'm, it was really busy and it's really packed. And I'm going, holy cow, like people are just buying stuff. And it was kind of kooky. And then on the way, I went there to buy whatever I was buying. And then on the way home, I had to stop at the uh, Home Depot or Rona or something to pick something up. And as I'm walking down, I put two and two together because as I'm walking down the Rona store uh, aisle, there's this huge row of blowout storage units, bins there. And I'm going, oh, isn't that interesting? You know, the consumerism is ramping up and uh, to accommodate the consumerism they have, oh, we just happen to have all these storage bins for you. And please uh, buy some storage bins if you need the space. And then of course, the uh, self-storage uh, space is really a booming uh, a booming thing given the degree of consumerism that both US and Canada engage in. It really is kind of uh when i had that realization i i should have actually uh acted on it because that was many years ago i should have started building self-storage or something because it was really something else when i connected uh those dots back then 
very uh very unsexy business you know very very uh lock it and leave it and don't don't think twice about it so yeah. it's uh it's in a very interesting business model and you know something that we've seen for for so many years and decades being around us self-storage and car washes so it was cool to have the opportunity to take that sort of offering to clients saying hey here are businesses that we all use that we all drive by we all see here's an opportunity that we can actually participate and own this project for a number of years until till they sell it yeah it really is remarkable so when you look at you know what's happening in canada and and i know it's a phenomena right around the world but let's just talk about canada whatever you see in the u.s uh we definitely saw uh an exodus you know early on in 2020 of people leaving the big city for all the reasons that they left they weren't sure where this whole thing was going to go there was lots of fear of being in uh cramped up spaces now two years later what's come out we see that people immediately started getting into the suburbs they started getting into smaller centers you know uh certainly even rural areas uh, as well as you know now in so we saw the smaller centers really pick up because technology as we know has shrunk the world we don't need to work from home or we don't need to go to the office to work we can work from home we can work from anywhere uh, has opened up a lot of opportunities and what are you seeing there? And I mean, I could go on on that one a little bit, but what are you seeing from a investment opportunities that you guys might be investigating? Are you staying in the major centers or are you actually starting to look elsewhere and wander? I don't want to say wandering, but investigating uh, the smaller centers outside of the major because of price points, for example. So I think that the I think that the downtown cores obviously experienced their their ebb and flow over the last uh, two two years or so. Uh, I think that there I think that there was maybe a little bit of a bigger perception of of maybe corporates and companies that had left the downtown core. I think that they maybe dimmed dimmed the lights and quiet quieted things down, but it's not like they they deadbolted the door shut and completely left the downtown core. Now the challenge that I think that companies are having right now is that employees and organizations employees have gotten used to the work from home aspect. So I think that getting them back downtown or back into that office, whether that's in a rural area or um, the, I think that they're going to experience some, some pushback and some challenge on that aspect. And also organizations have gotten accustomed and used to the structure of working uh, in their silos remotely from everyone's from home. So I think that the companies are starting to summon people back into the office. I think that from a, a, a sales standpoint and a rental standpoint, that there's been a strong recovery um, in the downtown cores in terms of, you know, the, the rental market was quite soft for, for the first several months of the pandemic with people giving incentives and all of that stuff to keep people in, in the, in the condos. Um, but I think now that as these companies are summoning people back into the office, that there has been uh, a strong recovery from, from a rent standpoint and also now starting to see some, some price growth. You know, there's uh, you know, there's lots of argument, I guess, and debate. I don't want to say argument, but let, we'll call it debate about people going back to the office and the effectiveness and or lack of. Now, not everybody can work from home, and that's the reality of it. I mean, you definitely have those jobs that you know you have to be there to to do the job. I don't know where you're in that space, Taylor. I'm just curious if you're in that space or not. But are you seeing what are you seeing in office space if you are at all? I know that it's not necessarily a, a, a place you hang out or 
but I thought maybe, do you have any insights into what's going on in terms of uh, offices? Are they sitting more empty? Are, is there more deals to be had in office space? Are you starting to see that commercial space come up? Any, any insights into some specificity around that? Yeah, so I, I kind of got my own uh, own own reverbaged opinion from this of uh, a guest that we'd interviewed on our interview thing. His name is Braden Singa. He works with Colliers downtown, and um, you know the Vancouver office space heading into COVID was at you know historically low vacancy rates, close to two percent. So you know unimaginably low vacancy rates. So. Then you then you throw in COVID right into that. There was some shifting and some movement in the market. I think some companies had some subleases where they were trying to maybe unload some space. But the sediment that we're seeing right now in the downtown office space is you've got that new Deloitte building that just finished on uh, on Georgia, that cube looking building. Uh, you've got the Amazon business, uh, Amazon new post office office that's finishing here soon. You've got the stack downtown Vancouver. So you've got all this brand new AAA office space that's coming in. And a lot of this has been leased already by these big, uh, big technology companies here into the Vancouver marketplace. And so I think it obviously went through a little bit of turmoil. There was some, some ebb and flow during that time frame. I think what we're going to see in terms of people downtown in that office is is going to be a bit of a hybrid to begin with. There are some companies that were keeping people there you know, throughout that whole period. There were companies that said, hey, you can work from home the entire time. I think right now we'll see a hybrid formation here uh, m- moving forward until they're able to regain and rebuild that, that culture that makes going into an office me- meaningful for people. Yeah, it is. And that's interesting. But I think when you talk about a downtown Vancouver, perhaps even a downtown Toronto, you know, you can live and work downtown. So it becomes a lifestyle choice, right? So you're actually working downtown and, uh, you know, walking back and forth to work from your home. Uh, Have you started to notice anything shifting in that condo market? Are you kind of, I know that I'm asking you questions that probably aren't necessarily in your space, but I'm, I'm wondering if just based on the fact of, you know, that you're kind of in the real estate overall and looking at some data, any insights around Toronto, Vancouver, downtown? Because I know there was a time where those both those condo markets took a hit. They started to come back a little bit. Now rates are high. Things seem to be softening again. What's your read on what's happening? No, not my area of expertise. The the Vancouver kind of Toronto metro condo market. Um, I live over here in North Van, so um, I'm more more monitor the the Lower Lonsdale North Van <laughs> uh, condo side of things. But uh, I I know that obviously there was some some deals or some discounts to be had for the first kind of six to twelve maybe fifteen months of the pandemic, and um, that I believe has has shifted to more of a balanced market, and um, I believe for a period of time, it was seeing some some solid uh, appreciation. The point you mentioned there about the interest rate increases and maybe a little bit of softening again as people start to kind of let the dust settle and see where that lands. But um, in terms of kind of, is it a buyer's market, seller's market? I, I don't have uh, a read on it. personal opinion on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting. So when you look at IRR and, you know, we let's go back to this journey of a entrepreneur and where do you see it going? Like, do you have a vision? What is it for you that do you have a, a strong vision for your business? Do you one day think you're going to sell it? Do you think you want to grow it to a hundred? You've got, you're starting to build your team. You're starting to kind of uh, gain some, some ground, or, you know, just through years of hard work, but 
where do you see yourself going when you look five years or 10 years down the road? Like you say, you're a young man. What do you see in the future, Taylor? Yeah. So, you know, I, I was fortunate enough where, where Cynthia brought me in seven years ago and, you know, you know, as I said, you don't, you don't know much going into these types of things. So, you know, you, you generally take kind of a, a leap of faith and a risk of bringing on new people. And so I was fortunate enough that, that she had the, the faith in me to, to bring, to bring me onto her team. And so in October of 2020 or uh, September of 2020, one of my best friends who played professional hockey, the, the, buddy that got drafted by the Calgary Flames. He started after his professional hockey career was over. He started working with Cynthia and I. And so now our team has grown to there's three of us that all work together here in North Van. And so for me, it's been really cool sort of passing that baton that Cynthia gave me down down to Austin and seeing how he learns and how he grows as as a salesperson and and you know seeing him market and grow his business. And so for me that part's been been really cool to see the the growth and the evolution of hey I didn't know much going into this thing I was taught what I know and now I'm teaching someone how to how to do this and so for me I don't I don't want a 200 person company I don't want a massive firm I like the boutiqueness the nimbleness I like the fact that we all know each other really well there's sort of kind of a community and a culture within within our team so I like I like that boutique and that that kind of that uh that more more nimbleness approach to to our team. Sure. And then we're really focused on integrating technology into our business to eliminate a lot of the headache and the hassles that we go through every day, which is paperwork, documentation, all of that stuff that takes up a lot of your time. Uh, we've spent a lot of time and energy trying to to develop and build technology to eliminate a lot of that that work uh, on our behalf uh, to allow us to spend more time talking to clients rather than doing doing paperwork. Yeah, you guys built an amazing backend and portal. I don't know where that is because I was when I looked at it, it was really early in the inception and the development of it. Uh, where have you come to on that? Just out of curiosity, because it was really awesome. Like it to your point, I mean, it just sped everything up. It took the stickiness away from it. It accomplished all that needed to be accomplished, and then some in terms of communication with your client base. Um, I thought it was very innovative. I know it was really custom, and you guys put time and energy and money into it. Uh, what's the, what's the update? This because uh, it's been probably a couple of years since I looked at it. Yeah, there was an ongoing joke in the uh, in the office that uh, we're more of a technology company than a real estate company <laughs> at some points. Just kind of these minutia meetings of just like tech and development and soft, like you know, just yeah. all the stuff that makes this sing. Is we found ourselves doing a lot of that and helping push that forward. So yeah. that that in itself was definitely a learning experience. And as you said, it's been a number of years to get it up into this point. So what our investor portal is designed to do, it's a 24-7 online website that allows our investors to go on and view all of the current opportunities that we offer, watch presentations, download packages, review legal documents, all of that stuff's made available. And then the second component is when clients do want to participate in these deals, they can go up and create their account, set the Know Your Client form, complete all that information online. We get a notification, we review it, then send you the subscription documents and everything's done digitally through that investor portal there. So we're able to do everything uh, online rather than sending emails and PDFs and DocuSigns and everything back and forth. Everything's done within that investor portal there. So uh, that's that's been, a, been our team's project for the last, uh, feels like kind of three years at this point. Yeah, I mean, to listen, you know, we're we've got a lot of technology in behind the real estate investment network and in my other businesses and technology when you're not 
designed to do it when it's not really how your brain fires, which is not how my brain fires. I love technology, by the way, but I'm the last guy that uh, would put up their hand to go and develop technology. I'm happy to use it. I think it's awesome. But man, oh, man, uh, it is a grind for me, uh, to say the least, the decisions that have to be made. And, you know, you've got some tech guy who's all excited about it. And I don't know. It's a toss up whether I want to talk to a tech guy or uh, who I least want to talk to, a tech guy or an accountant. I'm not sure which is uh, which is which it would be, but neither <laughs> are great. In my, this is not how my brain fires, and it's like I just can't I can't pull it off. Whichever is the next EMD that gets to use our uh, our software, they can thank us for all the uh, the hours of uh, revisions and uh, and headaches. Yeah, the pain, the cussing, the what the hell are we doing? Yeah. Oh, listen, I all I can say about it is that when I uh, reviewed it and looked at it, uh, it was spectacular. I thought you guys had done a great job. You'd seen you know you'd seen the future and you were doing great. You know, when I think about a conversation that I had with Jeff Booth, who uh, wrote the book um, The Price of Tomorrow, uh, you know, he talked about about technology and we talked about a lot of things but one of the things that Jeff talked about is the deflationary impact of technology and so when you think about yes you put all that work into it and yes it's there but just think about how much less time and energy goes into following up with your clients supporting your clients you know the the degree of communication far more transparent far more efficient you know you're not losing emails and behind the scenes i mean there's it is really uh, powerful to embrace technology and i think given what's going on in the world today uh Anybody who's not embracing it is going to find themselves left way behind. But there is a, a you know, I look at it and, and I think about the deflationary component of it. In some cases is, I shouldn't say in some cases. Yeah, I'm going to say in some cases, not all cases, is really great. And if you're, uh, you know, if you're a business that embraces that technology, like you guys have, uh, as much as you're not a technology company, it's, it's pretty cool. It's been a lot. Of, it's been a lot of fun. I think it's you know I I definitely don't take the credit for it. We've got an amazing technology team with Redium and shout out to Michael and Christina and yep. their Leo and that whole team that's helped us build that. And uh, thanks to Austin and Cynthia, my teammates, for helping push it forward as well. It's you know it's definitely been a, a grind and a team effort to get it to to a place that it is today. And if it was this easy, that's the reason why every other company would also have it set up and operational. So. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? You have to be willing to go through it. So when we talk about entrepreneurship and uh, you know the you know the pace of which we can find ourselves operating and the challenges that we're facing, when you look at it, you know there's a fundamental that I go back to, which is people look at the outcome. Uh, I don't know, I'll say somebody like yourself, uh, but it could be, you know, the outcome of, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, one of your uh, team is a former NHL player and, and I have lots of background in that in, in sports overall. And you look at that and many people want that outcome. They want that outcome called successful entrepreneur like yourself, you know, or they look at the outcome called, uh, you know, I'm playing in the NHL. They want that outcome when you kind of reflect on things, and I'm just kind of getting to the question that I want to ask you, is there's a there's a part of it that the outcome is one thing, but there's a journey that has to be taken to achieve that outcome. And the outcome in the case of, you know, whether it be, you know, being into the NHL or or being a successful entrepreneur, 
It's not like you get there and you stop. You know, there's always the journey that you're on to grow and to keep going. And, you know, when you reflect a little bit on that, Taylor, and, and I'm, I haven't been trying to catch you off guard in any way, but have you ever thought about what it is about the journey that you like? I mean, you you got the benefits of the outcome. You know, you've got a great team. You've got a successful business. And I know it's never quite successful enough and we get all that. But what about the what about the journey? What is it that you dig about the journey? You know, Mark Manson asked this question. Let me throw this one at you. This will be a curveball. You know, Mark Manson, if you've ever read any of his stuff, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck is, is, is his book. But along the way, he goes, you know, whatever you want to achieve – he phrases it as, what's the shit sandwich you want to eat? Because at the end of the day, that journey, what I refer to as a journey and the challenges that you have to be prepared to go, no, I'm, I'm willing to take that on. And whatever that take it on is. So what is it for you? You know, it, it's, it's funny that you asked this question because I think you, you were alongside me at a lot of these times, which was, you know, when rain was on the road, doing the road shows, Tuesday night in Edmonton, Wednesday night in Calgary, I would fly with a hockey bag from Vancouver with all of our booth materials in it to Calgary. I'd go to the rain meeting that night. I'd stay at a hotel. I'd wake up the next morning. I'd drive from Calgary to Edmonton with all of my booth stuff in the car. I'd set up my booth that next day in, in, in Edmonton. And I'm there talking to investors, trying to meet clients. And, you know, I think that that kind of that you, you see the, the results at which in two years later, when you launch a deal and that client writes you a check for $100,000, it wasn't that deal launch that got him excited to do business with you. It was the fact that you spent 20 minutes with him at a hotel in Edmonton when it was minus 20 out in the middle of January. So I think for me, a lot of that you know, the acres in the middle of November in, in Edmonton, you know, was that exactly where I wanted to be at that point in time? Maybe not exactly, but it's, it was, you know, what I believed was a thing to do for, for my team and my business and getting in front of different clients and being involved in the community. So I think that that grind and that process of those real estate meetings late at night after a full day of work and making that trek to, to Edmonton. And that's the stuff that the people, I think don't don't see in in the business is they see we raise these deals and we raise five hundred thousand dollars for a deal. They don't know what it took for those clients to to trust us with their money and 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 understand what we do enough to to believe in to believe in us. That's such a great example, Taylor. I mean, you, you, that really is because I you know I I I see it. I've you know I've been part of it, but you know it really is that, isn't it? Because. When, and also when you look at back on that, you know, when you consider what you know today, what you've achieved, the relationships you've built, the business acumen that you've developed and the knowingness, it's kind of like, you know, that's the shit sandwich you ate. But at the end of the day, can you imagine not doing that? Could you imagine having achieved what you've achieved by not doing that? It's kind of like an apprenticeship. You know, if you're a trades guy, you know, the, 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 there is a process, isn't there? There is a learning that has to go on. There is a work ethic that has to be developed. There is a knowledge that needs to be gained. And that is not the pretty part of the outcome. You know, the, the actual, you know, work ethic that you 
have to take on and test yourself against because I'm sure that was testing your resolve as well. So all those things. So when you look at it that way, can you reflect on it and go, yeah, that was a shit show for sure. But you know, where would you be today if you hadn't been there, I guess is the other question. Well, yeah, you, I mean, that that's kind of the only, I wouldn't say the only direction I had known, but there wasn't anyone else pointing me, you know, having having one business partner and one mentor it was kind of, you know, let's point in this direction, let's go and let's go and figure it out, figure yeah. it out along the way and didn't didn't know if there was, you know, didn't know if there was another pathway. So you kind of you don't know what you don't know. And I don't know how it would have turned out. And, yeah. you know, I am I am grateful, for, you know, for those those weekends where, you did sit inside a conference for three days straight, talk to 20 people a day for three days and, and you leave with no, with, with no clients, you know, you leave with no new clients that you've done business with. So I think, you know, leaving in Edmonton after a weekend, three days there and, and no new business that can be a shit sandwich in itself. But I think looking back on that experience, it's, it's, it's what, what taught me, what taught me along the way and great, grateful for those, those lessons, you know, the, the, the good and the cold. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so <laughs> you you like the heat. I get it. Um, that's why you want to keep going out to Phoenix and, and growing that part of it. So I know it was a little bit of a philosophical question, you know, something that's I'll ask you and, and, when I look at, you know, who you've surrounded yourself with or who you've been, you know, really been fortunate to be surrounded with, and I get that, uh, you know, Dave was a very successful guy and I know your dad well. And have you ever found yourself being compared to Dave? Do you think that people think, yeah, well, he's Dave's son. Did you ever, did you, did you ever get a sense of that in your journey along the way? I never, by the way, I want to share with you personally, I never, and I got to know and observe and, and I, I never have that. I joked, I I've told your dad that you're better than he is. So, uh, and I meant that. So, so, but, but for you in the general sense of it, have you, do you feel like you've ever been compared? Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's too much commentary that I, that I receive. Maybe it's said not, not towards me, mm-hmm. um, whether that's good, good commentary or, or negative commentary. Uh, but I, I, I can't say that it's something that, that I receive a lot. Yeah. Sometimes it's funny when we'll finish up something and I've gone through an event or something and I'm Taylor Steele and he'll finish something saying he's David Steele and we're both up there standing and talking. And by the end of it, someone's like, I had no clue that you guys were even related. And I'm like, well, what the last name didn't, didn't give it away. So um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's something that, uh, that that's been brought up too much in, in my career. And yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't yeah. say that. It's something I, you know, I, think about too much. I, I only asked the question out of curiosity because as much as big as the real estate world is, it's not really that big. And, and, and I, I asked the question because, you know, on the other side of it is that I think at the end of the day, and I've had different scenarios where people came from a place where they did have a, a parent that had been very successful in a business and did find themselves compared. But on the other side of that coin, of course, is they, they grounded through to come out on the other side of it, proving themselves in a really powerful way. And, and of course, you've done that in spades. So um, it was just more of a curious question. So as we wind down today, you know, and, and this conversation, you know, I look at what you've accomplished. I look at what you've got going on. And, uh, you know, congratulations. I think you guys are hitting it out of the park. I've always been a, a big fan of you and your team. But when we look at your success as an entrepreneur and as you kind of step back from it, you're you know still young, you got lots of energy and you're doing what you're doing. But at the end of the day, 
you have to be conscious of, I think, of how you're looking after yourself. So as I go through some of these next questions, you know, I'd call them rapid fire, but there's still some questions that I'm curious about for you. How much time do you spend or are you concerned? I don't want to say concerned. Are you focused on your fitness, on your mental health, on your spiritual health? How do you look after yourself so that you actually have the jam to do what you do? You know, whether it be eating the shit sandwiches of travel and, you know, carrying hockey bags full of stuff around or or travel into, you know, the U.S. and doing all that you got to do there. What what what's kind of your self-care routine about these days? Yeah, I think, you know, health and wellness is extremely important. And whether that's, you know, physical, whether that's mental, whether that's spiritual, I think it's important to to check in on yourself, understand where, you know, you believe you are in those different categories and, and also make sure that you're staying on, on top of that. And, you know, I think we all set lofty goals of meditating four times a week and gym five times a week and this and that. And um, for me personally, I try to get to the gym four to five times a week. Um, so staying active, you know, bike riding at the gym, you know, light lift, light uh, weight lifting, stuff like that, staying active. And then also uh, during the pandemic in May of the pandemic, I went to Canadian Tire and bought a, a sauna for my apartment. Yeah, I was thinking that uh, the saunas were going to be closed for much longer than this. And so I have a little one person sauna in my uh, den here at my condo. So I like to plug that in and go in and take, you know, my AirPods and listen to something or read something in there. And so for me, I get a little bit of headspace in the sauna. It's a bit of a meditation, but also some physical benefit, um, but also really staying active and trying to get in the gym as much as possible. And then also playing on a, a beer league hockey team. So for me, you know, definitely three to four to five times a week is, is, is where, where I try and land in terms of, you know, staying on top of my, my physical and mental health. Awesome. So you're still getting some hockey in. So that's great. Now, uh, do you have a favorite book or that you either, you know, that you've read that made a big difference to you, one that you gift frequently, anything like that? So a really good book that I read recently was uh, the Black Stretchy Pants book by uh, Chip Wilson. It has nothing to do with real estate, more on the entrepreneurship side of things. I think it was a story that we all heard told from a completely different perspective. It was also really interesting to hear Chip Wilson's entrepreneurial journey and, and how he got started and how much, you know, clothing uh, experience and, and background he had before he started a company like, like Lululemon. So that was a, as you know, as a Vancouverite here, Lululemon thought that that was a really cool read. Cool. Are you reading or are you taking, are you uh, audio these days? I would say I'm more on the audio side of things. I like listening to, you know, podcasts and interviews, stuff like this. I think it's an easy way to absorb it. But I also, when I'm on vacation, I like the actual paper book. I like being able to flip pages and kind of track where I am in that standpoint. So yeah. uh, a little, little bit of both. Yeah, I'm built that way. I, I Because I live on the acreage and I'm, I do a lot of uh, outdoor stuff, I love listening to uh, audio when I'm uh, riding a garden tractor or whatever I'm doing mowing lawn. Uh, iPhone or Android? iPhone. Of and course. I'm glad you are as well now. <laughs> I'm converted. I don't know. You guys make too big a deal of it, I think. So, Took you long uh, enough. <laughs> that's true. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? My one in my grade seven yearbook back when I played uh, back when I played hockey was it's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. So I'll, I'll pull that one off the top of my head from the uh, the grade seven yearbook. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that makes sense, I guess, because you had high hopes of, you know, playing hockey at a competitive level one day and you just never really grew into that. Right. You're like you're not physically I mean, you're you're not 
really small, but you're not hockey player size. Johnny Goudreau, maybe. <laughs> That's great. Uh, okay, what's your favorite swear word? I'd say the F word. You're an F bomber. Yeah, mostly, yeah. mostly am too. It's that... a funny question. I've never heard that. <laughs> throw, it's just meant to throw you off. Let's see how brave you are to say fuck on the podcast. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the gates? Uh, I've got a lot of people I'm uh, looking forward to seeing up there. I, you know, was unfortunately, you know, had some people at a young age taken away from us that that realistically should should still be here today. And I think there's just a lot of people that that we're looking forward to to seeing when we get up there. Oh, that's an interesting. I've never had that answer. That's cool. On a scale of one to ten, how weird do you think you are, Taylor? Ask my girlfriend. She'd probably rate me a 10, but I'll, uh, I'll land a six, six, six and a half. Dude, you are so not weird. I'd put you at a two. What are you very, what are you not very good at, but you keep trying it anyways? Besides, I don't know, hockey or golf. What am I not that good at that I keep trying? Well, yeah, generally I give it up before I uh, keep, keep trying and realize I'm uh, not that good at it. Okay. So, um, I just, so just switched over to skiing. Um, snowboarded for 15 years and now switched on to the pair of skis and so i'm uh getting going on that and it's you know it's fun to be a rookie at something again you know there's very few points in your life where it's something that's completely brand new i find so to have uh have a sport like that that you know really gets you out of the comfort zone has been uh, a learning curve oh that's cool good for you room your desk or your car what do you clean first my room my room Okay. Do you have a favorite tune or a favorite band? Uh, favorite band is uh, Rufus Du Soul. They're an Australian uh, artist group. Uh, I've seen them probably seven or eight times over the last uh, five years. So they've been uh, they've been a fan favorite of mine for sure. Oh, that is a fan favorite for sure. Favorite movie? One that stands out? Uh, the Hangover is a classic. Just uh, <laughs> it's just so funny, and you know it is. The, the the humor that they were able to get away with back then, it's going to be hard to replicate in the future <laughs> moving forward. So uh, you just got to enjoy those classics. That's awesome. And the last question of the day: What are you grateful for, Taylor? What am I grateful for? Um, you know, I think you can go down to the the core fundamentals, you know, grateful for your family, grateful for your partner, grateful for the the, the company and the team that I work with, um, grateful for the friend group that I have, grateful to live in Vancouver, you know, grateful for my health. You know, I think all of those things are um, as as cliche as they are. I, you know, I am grateful to, to have good health and I am grateful to have good friends and I am grateful for the family members that I have and, you know, the girlfriend that I have as well. So I think that those are all things that, that I am grateful for each, each, each day. Okay. That's a great answer, by the way. And, uh, how long have you had your girlfriend now, Taylor? Uh, coming up on four years in September. Four years. Okay. Well, yeah. I yeah. could give you a job. Don't, don't, and, don't remind her. <laughs> I, I could give you a job and ask you when you're going to you know, pop the question, but that would be unfair. But should your girlfriend listen to this podcast, you know, uh, we wouldn't want to set her up for any expectations. So we'll, we'll pass on that one. Well, here's what I'm grateful for, Taylor. I'm grateful for the opportunity to have uh, had this conversation with you today and certainly to be an observer on the sidelines of your journey. And uh, you're definitely impressive in my books. And uh, I want to say thanks for joining me on the show today. 
Thanks for having me, Patrick. It's uh, it's been great to be on this this journey here, and uh, you you and your team over at Rain have been such an integral part of of, of you know my growth and our team's growth, and uh, appreciate the the community and the friendship that you guys have provided for us over the last uh, you know many many years. Yeah, well, keep it up, and we'll catch you up soon. Thanks, Bell. Thanks a lot for doing this, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.